Hey y'all, welcome to episode 10. Woot woot! This is actually try two because the first time around when I was nearly done editing, my computer died forever and I lost my progress, which was rough, but here we are, episode 10 try two. So apparently, the city of Evanston, Illinois recently passed a housing reparations initiative, which gives me the chance both to talk about the long history of discriminatory housing policy behind this bill and discuss something else that I haven't explored as much as I wanted to on this show, which is the fact that racism isn't something inevitable. Racist systems have to be built by conscious decision making. They don't just happen. And suburban housing segregation is a really good way to see this because what we think of as suburbs now with their weird twisty streets that are impossible to navigate and the houses that all look the same and even their racial homogeny, those were all conscious decisions by developers and realtors over time. And so today I am talking to Dr. Paige Glotzer of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who recently came out with the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, about the decisions and decision makers behind suburban housing segregation. Before we get into that, I gotta tell you something. For the month of April, Podchaser, which is one of the many places you can find my podcast, and also the IMDB of podcasts, is doing something called Reviews for Good, where they're donating 25 cents to Meals on Wheels for every podcast review they get all month. And that's for whole podcasts or just episodes of podcasts. So if you go on and review my podcast or any of the 10 episodes I've released so far, that's 25 cents to Meals on Wheels, which has already been so necessary, but it's like way more necessary right now. And then when I respond to that review, they'll double that donation and I'll definitely respond. So because it's for a good cause, I'm encouraging you to just go and review podcasts. But the link to review We the Black People is in the show notes. So go do that. Now to the show. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk about the fact that housing segregation was not something inevitable. It was something that was manufactured. So just tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. So in my research for my book, I started to learn that a small set of white developers in the 1880s, 1890s, really tried to experiment with new forms of racial segregation in order to create long-term profit. And thinking about housing as long-term profit for them was a big change from how people built houses in cities and in suburbs prior to that. And so when they thought about what could be long-term, they started to plan the actual spaces to try and stay the same, or as they put it, it would be stable, which became their code word for staying white, also staying wealthy. So for them, class and race was always working together. So some of the things that they did in terms of actual physical planning were to build walls. So people wouldn't have to, within their developments, have to look at mixed race or older neighborhoods outside of the developments. They also created street systems that were difficult to get in and out of. And they also set rules, including some of the first racial restrictions that applied to entire neighborhoods in the country. And so anyone who would buy a home in the suburbs were legally obligated to keep it white only. And there were additional ways that this was enforced by the developers 
but it was profitable enough that it actually began to earn them a reputation. And eventually they were able to start to say to policymakers in cities and federal policymakers that this was the best way to build neighborhoods. And that had a huge number of consequences that we're still dealing with today. Truly, yeah. So one of the things that has led to the way that suburbs are segregated to this day is tying property value to race and saying that because there's this way that whiteness is attached to bringing up property value while any other race is tied to lowering property values. But to tell this story, your book is centered in Baltimore. And when you tell this story, it actually surprisingly doesn't start in Baltimore. You actually start by talking about Britain and also a Black neighborhood called Cross Keys, which that was not where I was expecting the story to start. So please explain why it starts there. I think this goes back to uh, what you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Brooklyn, that to look at how segregation was not inevitable, I think it's worth thinking about where to start a story. And so if we start a story of the suburbs with just suburban developers building their suburb, I think that erases a lot of the people, the history, and the kind of richness of what came before that also helps us understand what happened afterwards. So I begin with cross keys. It was very important for me to show that before there were rich white people living on the land in Baltimore. There was actually a thriving Black community that had been there long before, beginning with possibly the descendants of enslaved people. It's a little hard to tell based on the records, but essentially that land had been a mix of former essentially plantations. They were called estates in Baltimore and Black property owners who did face hurdles when trying to claim title to their property, but actually managed to buy land, have families, establish businesses, build houses, And that neighborhood was there and coexisted with the segregated suburb until part of it was demolished in the 1960s by the federal government. And so there's a lot of continuity in the events that kind of really guided what happened in Cross Keys, but only after it had been around for a good 70, 80 years before the suburb was built, basically on top of it and next to it. So I think it was important to see that. And also, I think there's a really big problem when talking about segregation, about erasure. So I think that this idea that maybe suburbs or the edges of cities comprised of empty land, even into the 19th or 20th centuries, also really actually replicates a lot of the stories that white developers themselves are trying to say in order to market segregated suburbs and claim spaces as white spaces. So I think that this is in some part a way of trying to get away from the narratives that have been so destructive, while also highlighting, I think, the more, not only more accurate, but more nuanced history of land and people and relationships. The reason why I start in England, as well as Cross Keys, is because I think it's also very important to trace how money worked in housing segregation. Uh, I mentioned long-term profits a moment ago, but the reason why the developers in Baltimore and other places around the country too were trying to think about planning suburbs out in new ways was because they were actually getting their money in new ways as well. So the suburb that I look at in my book, Roland Park in Baltimore, was actually financed by 400 British investors. And it wasn't the only thing they financed. So for them, the segregated suburb wasn't remarkable or exceptional. It was just one more place to park their money. 
And when I went back and followed that money, it also was in the Caribbean, in sugar plantations. It was in sites of British colonialism, such as India or Egypt in the 19th century. It was in the American West. They played a role in Native American genocide and displacement. So I started to think, well, if you follow the money, not only do you get to see the decisions on the ground, building a suburb in a new way, but you suddenly can connect the segregated suburb and the emergence of Jim Crow at that very same time to a much more global story about kind of the history of white supremacy and essentially the various linkages there are between people all around the world. That's fascinating. Even empty land. It reminded me immediately of Australia and the way that Australia was called empty land as a way to ignore and displace the Aboriginal people there. And to see that there were clear connections between segregated suburbs and this worldwide system of oppressing black and brown people just makes the story so much more complex. It does. And I think that it also helps to bring history back into the present to see how capital is still circulating in ways that can be very destructive to black and brown lives. And thinking about even things like the 2008 housing crisis, that was a global investment story that ended up in many people, disproportionately black and brown people, losing their homes and losing their accumulated wealth. So while many things have changed, for good and for bad, I think there is a certain amount of kind of cyclicalness that we can kind of learn when, again, we change where we start the story. Okay, so we just got into some big global stuff, but I do also want to get to the decisions on the ground that led to housing segregation. So you were talking about how developers did put these racial restrictions into how they developed land, but actually... I believe at the beginning, when they first started, they didn't explicitly have these racial clauses. That was something that developed later on. So yeah, let's start before they even had the racial restrictions, how they even got there. That's a great point. And I think it's also a little bit of a misconception, right? And going back to this inevitable piece, that the moment suburbs were built, they were built with racial restrictions and they were built to be segregated. But actually, you're right. It came in some ways incrementally and over time. So before the 1890s, there were forms of essentially racial segregation in kind of deciding where people could live. But also there was a type of legislation at the city level called nuisance legislation. And it was one of the only tools that cities had to essentially say this type of business or institution or home has to go here or here or here. And there was a lot of white supremacist decisions that went into it. There were a lot of ableist decisions as well. For instance, the idea that mental asylums, as they they were called, had to be on the outskirts of the city because people in them were undesirable. So that type of logic, which then kind of ran headlong into things such as eugenics, the sort of making of racial hierarchy at the end of the 19th century, flowed into the sort of big bucket of how developers made decisions. Now, In the 1890s, one of the first things that the Roland Park Company did was check with their lawyers in Maryland to see if they could put in a racial restriction against African-American. And their lawyers were white. Maryland had been a slave state. But the lawyers actually said no. They said no because of the 14th Amendment. They said no, pointing to how it would be embarrassing in a state with one of the largest Black populations in the country 
the Civil War was still kind of a living memory for a lot of people as well. So they thought that essentially this would be, they actually called it an embarrassment. Now, the Roland Park Company listened to their lawyers, because if there's one thing developers often do, it's listen to their lawyers. But they only listened to them for a little while. And they also never used those lawyers again. So when they built their second development, which was a little bit later, 1893 was when they asked their lawyers. 1911 is when they started work on their second development, Guilford. That's when they put the racial restriction in. However, from the beginning, they had a nuisance clause in their covenants, their covenants being the set of rules that ran with the property, that property owners were legally supposed to follow. And while that didn't explicitly contain the prohibition on African-American occupancy or sales like the later ones did, nuisance was absolutely standing in for a set of people that would be considered undesirable, as well as a set of uses of property that were considered to be undesirable for a suburb. And we can really even see that working if you look at the advertisements for Roland Park at the same time. So what's not in the restrictive covenants, you can actually see still kind of working in the ads where there was a lot of talk about how moving to Roland Park meant that you were free of, and they used this term, undesirable neighbors. So that became a kind of catch-all, but that was then actually explicitly racially encoded with Guilford. So it was there. I think it's also worth pointing out that Baltimore's racial geography was very much a black-white binary. And I think this is how a lot of Marylanders thought about people who lived in Maryland at the time. Now, that the actual demographics are more complex than that because whiteness meant something different. So there was a lot of immigrants, there were Italians, and there were Jews, and whiteness was very complicated. However, the idea of the nuisance actually didn't come initially from Maryland. It came from places as far away as California with different racial geographies. So there were additional ways that nuisances were also racialized that also informed how they were used later. So for instance, some of the first restrictions that were nuisance-based were actually used against Chinese renters in California. So there's actually, again, like a whole racial hierarchy that really in some ways was quite adaptable. And this is one of the reasons why I think segregation was so persistent is that it was very, very adaptable for the needs of the people trying to use it. So the way that it ended up looking in Baltimore may have been similar to the way it may have looked in Chicago or New York, but there were also going to be differences based on essentially what was going on locally. However, that essentially amounted ultimately to a national pattern in which you can kind of see how housing segregation had similarities no matter where you went throughout the country. Nuisance? Really? Calling someone a nuisance, it just sounds so racist. Oh, yeah. No, nuisances were and still are racist. I mean, especially now when it is actually illegal to discriminate in a lot of different kind of areas of housing or land use planning. I mean, it's still very racist. But nuisance still stands in now as a colorblind catch-all where it can kind of legally do the work that saying we don't want Black people to live here. You can't say that anymore, even if that's a widely held sentiment amongst white people. So nuisance still functions in a way that combines essentially the uses of land with potentially the people that may live or work or move onto the land. 
So I think that, yeah, absolutely. Like colorblindness was working in 1891 in a way that helped to shore up the color line. And I think it's still in some ways working now, even though it's working a little bit differently, it still performs this very racist function. You were talking about the way that the implied racism kind of function differently in different locations, which that comes up in your book as real estate used to kind of be a really shady profession. But part of trying to make it professional (laughs) was to standardize it, which plays a lot into what you were just saying about local decision making, that even though they were trying to professionalize and say there were standards, it was a lot based off of local conditions and local ideas of what segregation should look like. Yeah, absolutely. One of the fascinating things about the history of housing segregation is that it's not entirely top down or bottom up, meaning that it was constantly shifting in little ways at the local level, but that also kind of fed into how realtors and policymakers and planners tried to also standardize it. So in some ways, ideas about segregation could come up from the experiences of some developers or municipal planners, and they can come up and become part of this pool of ideas that was then circulated nationally. And ultimately, the goal of some organizations, including real estate professional associations, was to create one standard set of what they called best practices for real estate. In the late 19th century and the 20th century, a lot of groups, including realtors, We're trying to, what they call professionalize, to form associations with dues-paying membership, with annual conventions, and they wanted to bring prestige, but also they wanted to define the contours to their occupations. The medical profession had done this earlier, architects had done it a little earlier, and they actually became examples for realtors. And so there were attempts beginning in the 1890s, but really getting off the ground in 1908. So again, right at this Jim Crow moment where segregated suburbs are really starting to flourish in a lot of places, you have white realtors getting together because real estate was a discriminatory profession as well. And they were saying, all right, we're the real estate men. And it was mostly men at the time. We're here. We're going to try and really bring respect to what we do by setting barriers to entry for who can actually be a realtor. And if we set those barriers to entry and we define what the sort of best ethics are of practicing real estate, then we will actually be in a better position, they said, to start creating a legislative agenda, to be taken seriously, create more trust. This desire for legitimacy led to NAREB, or... The National Association of Real Estate Boards. Today, they're called the National Association of Realtors, and they still have their headquarters in Chicago, which is where I went to actually look at their records. They let me, because everybody in my book is dead. So they said, fine, you can write about us. But I think that it's actually also really important to note that NAREB developed this really outsized platform for influencing policy. And the leaders of NAREB were often suburban developers because they were considered the most reputable people at these meetings. So you could see the segregated suburbs essentially had cachet amongst people who may have been doing all other types of real estate business. And that then became the basis for writing some of these codes of ethics. And one of the ethics beginning in the early 20th century that was really written straight onto the books was that it was unethical for a realtor to introduce into a neighborhood a type of person or property that they said was incompatible with that neighborhood. And they explicitly used as an example, 
the race of a person. And they really only meant this in one direction. They meant having a Black person look for a house in a white neighborhood. They said that would be unethical because it would potentially lower the property value of that neighborhood. Lowering property value would be a destructive act from a realtor. And so it would be grounds for expulsion from the organization. So that's where automatically having a basis of being a segregated organization also opened the door for a segregated code of ethics and for the standardization of this practice that property value was tied to race, even though ultimately that was never totalizing in the sense that NARAB never came to actually represent even the majority of people who actually were in the real estate business in the United States. Their professionalization project did actually work in the sense that when policymakers came to seek expertise, those were the people that were sought out, including the federal government in the Great Depression, when they wanted to make some of the first national housing policies. Wow. The idea of making racism and segregation something that is like the ethical thing to do is wow. And there's this really crazy part of your book where you talk about how at like real estate conventions, there was this way they had to perform white masculinity, which was just, yeah, go ahead. One of the things that just, I I almost fell off my chair when I first saw some of these documents in the archives. So I was sitting in Chicago in the headquarters of the National Association of Realtors, their own institutional records. And the archivist, who wasn't a realtor, they were a full-time archivist with a library sciences degree, said, hey, you might want to look at the convention records because this is where people really did business with each other. And so I pulled it out thinking, okay, I would read maybe some of the, the minutes of meetings that they had. And then I got to the first brochure, essentially the program for the conference, which everyone at a conference would have had a copy of. And I started thumbing through it. They sang songs. It's like, oh, why are realtors singing songs? And suddenly I'm like, they had a song and they wrote this in dialect. This is how they spelled it. They said masses on the cold, cold ground. They went, whoa, 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 wait, what? And then as I thumbed through it, I'm like, okay. There is a lot of performing race and gender here. It was a kind of collective doubling down on seeing like the other, seeing people who were different than them, and they were white men. It was also a way of shoring up their own whiteness and their own masculinity, because a lot of leisure programs at these conventions were all about how they were like jolly swell fellows. So it was supposed to be in some ways like fraternizing as well as discussing business, like let's talk about racially restrictive covenants or let's talk about building a neighborhood. So I realized that it was impossible to separate out the business function from how realtors also had a sort of social function that really went into why they were so committed to this project of seeing people in property together, as I put it. I've since learned other organizations outside of real estate, they also did things like this in the 1910s and the 1920s. But what does it mean when it's realtors doing this? The way realtors are seeing themselves meant that they were then almost doubly or triply committed to upholding or furthering and standardizing racist practice because they had a social stake in it as well as their professional and economic stake in it. And when they take off their hats at the end of the day, they also are people who live in homes. 
they have thoughts about their own neighborhoods. So I think that they also really connected through these conventions, the personal and professional in a way that really strengthened the realtor and their impact on the geography of the United States. Okay. You were talking about how this effort to standardize and professionalize being a realtor took them all the way up to having like power in the federal government during the Roosevelt administration and like New Deal practices, which is often where the story of housing segregation starts. But they were building power and tying race and property value together long before that. I think you're right that essentially when you get to the New Deal, what scholars and what people tend to focus on when thinking about housing is redlining. And redlining is an extremely important moment in the history of housing segregation in the United States, because it is a moment where talking about standardization, this was a huge leap in not just standardizing, but codifying something, turning something into policies that then no matter what an individual interpersonal belief was at anywhere, these were the policies in which people were operating. So redlining was such a huge moment because it essentially created one of the most enduring and I think important structures of housing segregation. Can we take just one step back? What is redlining? Yes. What is redlining? So during the Great Depression, the housing industry essentially collapsed. It was difficult to start any new construction, but also people were losing their homes because of economic catastrophe. They couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't pay their mortgage. And so this was also having ripple effects for banks. So this was an entire massive sector of the economy that the federal government said, all right, we need to step in and we need to somehow They didn't use the term bail it out, but essentially help to stabilize to prevent further economic catastrophe. So part of the New Deal was very much that economic imperative to stabilize different industrial sections of the economy. This one just happened to also include, we also need to stop people from losing their homes. So one of the first things that was done to this effect during the New Deal, there was a federal agency that was created called the Home Owners Loan Corporation, HOLC. Some people call it Hulk, which reminds me of the superhero, but I'll just go with Hulk. So Hulk turned to realtors and said, help us understand what are the best ways to evaluate how much a property is worth. Why did they want to understand the rules for appraising property or determining its worth? It's because they were going to essentially buy up mortgages that people were in danger of losing. They were going to take them and the federal government itself was directly going to handle them. This was the first time the federal government would be essentially stepping into mortgage lending. And they said, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to change the terms of those mortgages directly as the federal government. This will take these distressed mortgages off of the ledgers of banks, meaning make banks better off. And also, it will, if we change the terms that they're easier to pay, it will keep people in their homes. So they introduced what is actually now a pretty standard form of mortgage lending, which is you take the mortgage and you stretch it out over 25 or 30 years, and you pay the same amount each month. Mortgages work very differently prior to that. You often have to pay it off in like five years with a huge payment at the beginning or end. So it was really hard to have a mortgage, actually. They took it, they did that. but 
the federal government didn't just want to take all the distressed mortgages. They only wanted to get the mortgages where they thought that over time, houses would somehow maintain or even increase in value. So they were thinking again about property value as a really key function of how they were going to operate. So they said, all right, we need to know how property value works. And they used the term risk. They don't want houses at risk of lowering in value. So they turned to realtors and they said, help us understand this. And with the help of realtors across the country in over 200 cities, Pulp produced maps where every neighborhood and every property in a neighborhood was evaluated for quote unquote risk. And they were assigned color grades. So neighborhood could be essentially what was considered very good. It would be colored green on a map and given a grade of A, like A plus, good job. And those are the ones that were the least risky in whole parlance. These tended to be white segregated suburbs because they thought, well, property value is great here. There's no reason that property value is going to go down because they are, well, stable. They have rules that protect their long-term fortunes. So back to developers. And they then went to B, which is blue. And those were sometimes older neighborhoods. So sometimes, you know, the age of a house may mean that like it's going to have some wear and tear on it, or maybe its rules were a little less enforceable. Those were B. They went to C. C was yellow on a map, like a caution. And these were often areas with suspect white people, such as Jews, Eastern European immigrants, where they're like, "Mm, you're really not the ideal resident, but, you know, there's hope for you and there's hope for your neighborhood, but your housing is kind of mixed. Maybe it doesn't look like a suburb, like we like it. And then you got down to the D. D was colored red on a map, which gave rise to the term redlining. And D-rated areas were often rated D simply because of the presence of Black people. Could be renters, could be homeowners, could be people who were quite well off, could be people who were poor. It didn't matter. And this is where there was a kind of exceptional way that Hulk treated Black people in redlining, which was they actually didn't say, okay, let's look at all these qualities of housing together with race. And then, oh, Black people, redline. Now, I should note that like Hulk actually did refinance or change mortgages for African-Americans sometimes. And actually, the very first person to repay their Hulk mortgage was a Black woman. Susie May Rakestraw of Macon, Georgia, paid off her Hulk loan in 1934. But at the same time, redline areas on the whole were almost entirely considered no-go zones. So by the time these redlining maps were made, it meant that the beneficiaries of these really good lending policies were mainly going to be people who lived in segregated neighborhoods, and that usually meant white people, and it usually meant fairly affluent or middle-class white people. But in general, race was absolutely one of the key factors in redlining, like full stop That is not even up for debate in terms of scholarship or in terms of how anything played out. Being Black, according to the federal government, was a reason to deny someone an opportunity to stay in a home. And that was redlining. But subsequent federal agencies took all of those criteria that were used to make those maps and adopted it for all subsequent housing policies. So that meant that even though this had its origins in the Great Depression, Redlining had huge staying power because every single layer of housing policy on top of it 
including for, say, returning veterans after World War II, including for people seeking private mortgages from a bank. All of it was tied to Hulk rules. Hulk rules were made with realtors based on what realtors thought were best practices from their decades of experience. And that takes us back to suburban developers who helped to really set the tone. And if we look at some of the manuals and the criteria that were used by federal agencies, they look a lot like restrictive covenants because there is that direct line to essentially setting rules that base property value on how property and people were kind of evaluated together. Thank you for writing that down. I've actually never had someone explain red lighting to me like that before. Super useful. (laughs) And then there was that time where like race was explicitly part of federal housing policy. But then not long after that, I think it was like late 40s, early 50s, race kind of stops being explicit. It goes back to being kind of an implied part of how housing is discussed. Yeah. So in terms of timeline, you're absolutely right. It doesn't look like there's very much time between the creation of redlining maps and 1948, in which there was a Supreme Court case called Shelley versus Kramer, in which the Supreme Court ruled that racially restrictive covenants were unenforceable. That's not illegal. That's just unenforceable, meaning that someone still had to try and like create a legal challenge and then it wouldn't stand up in court. But it was enough of a blow to the legality of restrictive covenants, especially that this prompted federal agencies and NARAB to change the wording of their rules. However, when looking at the archival research, there are a few things that didn't change. For one, in the NARAB Code of Ethics, that code that I had mentioned earlier about how it was unethical to introduce people of different races into neighborhoods, that was taken out. But what they said instead was you couldn't introduce incompatible uses. This was a deliberate attempt to uphold the status quo because use included living in a house. So occupancy was a type of use. So you couldn't introduce incompatible types of occupancy. It amounted to the same thing. The same thing with the Federal Housing Administration, which was one of those agencies that came after Hulk that really layered its own policies on top of Hulk's rules. The Federal Housing Administration had its big manual in the 40s, and it looked a lot like a restrictive covenant. They also just took out anything that seemed explicit, but they didn't change the logic, nor did they actually change the practices of associating property value with race. They were covering themselves, but they weren't changing anything. And in practice, this was borne out because racial segregation in lending continued and also racial discrimination in real estate practice continued and restrictive covenants themselves continued. In fact, just a year, I think it was less than a year after Shelley B. Kramer and these changes, you have the Chicago Real Estate Board still sending model restrictive covenants out to its members. So it was deliberately just keeping up the status quo. Now, there's also some scholarship that makes the case that this ruling came in 48 because actually racially restrictive covenants specifically were starting to be broken more and more in cities. And there's some truth to that. So you actually have, after World War II, a lot of upward mobility, especially African-American upward mobility. Now, there was still a huge discriminatory impact of some of the federal social safety net that benefited veterans. But nevertheless, jobs were really good by the early 50s. And it was a little easier to, a little easier to potentially move to different neighborhoods. 
And so you start to actually see in places like Chicago and Baltimore, covenants aren't necessarily being as effective in their goal of segregating as they have been anyway. So it's arguable that not only was the status quo being kept up by these institutions, by these associations, but also restrictive covenants were in decline as one of the main tools anyway. So this was going to be a time then where the actual tools of segregating space were going to start to change in the sense that to preserve the status quo, people were once again starting to experiment with how to do that best in a change political context, just like developers had experimented in the 1890s and early 20th century. And sure enough, there is a whole different language that emerges, especially to the 1960s, around how to talk about housing discrimination and segregation. And this is where you also see a lot more of a reliance, especially by white realtors and policymakers, on things that seem colorblind, but actually the intent, enforcement and practice all point towards deliberate efforts to continue to create barriers. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but is that where we get into predatory lending? It can be. It can be the start. So 1968 is actually the banner year in which housing discrimination based on race, also based on gender, is actually finally ruled illegal, right? It's part of the kind of big package of civil rights laws that are passed in the mid to the late 60s. But this is where you can pick up on the work of scholars like Yonge Amata-Taylor and Rebecca Martial, who ask, well, what happened after redlining? Why is it that even with the creation of what seemed to be inclusion, you still had forms of predation and there were still kind of really visible disparities, even just in the kind of physical conditions of neighborhoods that seem to be based on race. So one of the things that did happen was after housing discrimination was ruled illegal, there were new ways in which the federal government, especially HUD, Housing and Urban Development, really did partner with realtors. And this time it did include actually realtors from all different races. So you aren't just talking about white realtors anymore, actually. Now and after the 1960s, we can talk about realtors who were men, women, white, black, and so on and so forth throughout the country. But federal policy included programs that left opportunities for landlords to profit from what seemed like inclusion, or it left opportunities for banks to profit from what seemed like inclusionary lending. But the terms of those loans or the conditions of, say, apartments or houses that became available for Black people to buy were usually terrible. And so this is where Kiangi Amata-Taylor says, this is the rise of predatory inclusion, how it was still extremely profitable to essentially prey on folks who had been, especially Black women, poor Black women, she says, who had the fewest amount of options, but also wanted to use these new federal programs and loans in order to actually become homeowners. But for them, a home wasn't an asset that increased in value and created generational wealth. It actually took away what little wealth they may have had. It stripped them of their wealth. So these were toxic in some ways. And these practices of predatory inclusion really do bring us up to moments like 2008, where you have in a big way what was called reverse redlining, where areas that had been redlined meant they had been essentially starved of credit, were flooded with credit 
but on really terrible terms. And so that meant that those mortgages, which were then a lot of financial things were dumped in, they were packaged, they were sold, they were bundled with things. They were essentially taking time bombs because they were predatory assets, they were predatory things. And so this is why when those ticking time bombs started to go off, it was the people who were living in homes with these predatory mortgages who were some of the first to lose their homes. And so the legacy of redlining, if you get the predatory inclusion, is that redlining actually created a very vulnerable homeowner class who were also the first to lose their homes or to become worse off by being homeowners. So many things no one has ever really explained to me before. Thank you. And since you just brought that all the way up to 2008, that can lead us right into March 22nd, 2021, when Evanston passed a local reparations bill, which basically it gives $10,000 to $25,000 to Black Americans who can prove that they were victims of discriminatory housing policy from 1919 to 1969. Or you can also show proof of it to you after that for either ancestors or their descendants, specifically to buy property in Evanston, which that's a whole problem itself. How does that play into this long history of housing segregation? I think in some ways, the Evanston Reparation Initiative, I think has some features that show us the conversation around housing continues to change. And it also means that forms of housing discrimination continue to change and evolve and adapt, just like they had done throughout the 20th century and earlier. So I think there are some really interesting and potentially positive things that Evanston did. I think the fact that it started with housing really signals an awareness of just how central housing is to essentially fully access citizenship in the United States. Becoming a homeowner has become embedded in this idea of like what it means to have restorative justice. If you become a homeowner, then suddenly you have essentially full access to the slew of benefits, political privileges, financial privileges that seem to only accrue to property owners. And so I think that it was very interesting, and I think it demonstrates historical awareness to start with housing. But a big critique of the plan is that it doesn't go far enough. Now, Evanston isn't the federal government, which is where I think a lot of reparations advocates say reparations needs to come from the federal government. But Evanston did it in a way that also shows that housing discrimination really was something that was local as well as national. Right? And I think that we see that historically, things like in my work with the Roland Park Company, they worked with local policymakers long before they worked with federal policymakers. So this does make an interesting case that reparations maybe should be thought of as having local components as well as, I think, hopefully, eventually soon, federal components. That being said, I think that the, there are some limits to how the historical awareness that seems to inform Evanston's decisions are being played out. So I think the first thing that jumped out to me, other than it's focused on housing and homeowners, is that year range that you mentioned, 1919 to 1969. That's a very limited range to discuss injustice from housing segregation. Now, 1919 is the fascinating year to start because that was linked to Evanston discriminatory zoning. And I haven't mentioned zoning much today, but essentially discriminatory zoning really increased throughout the country, I guess, including in Evanston. 
after another Supreme Court case in 1917, Buchanan v. Worley, that ruled that uh, a city government couldn't simply say Black people live here, white people live here. They couldn't designate zones for people based on race. So what happened is a bunch of cities in the aftermath of that, including Evanston, including Baltimore, turned to use zoning, which is still the zoning that you see in effect throughout the country. So again, local, national related. So use zoning, the idea that you have a residential neighborhood here, an industrial neighborhood here, is very much a source of harm. It has been a source of harm. And so I think that recognizing that reparation should be tied to this history of zoning, again, great. But why did it stop in 1969? And that's what really fascinates me, because 1968 is when you start to have housing discrimination ruled illegal. So suddenly it's almost going back to an older narrative that the civil rights movement happened and everything got fixed. And that is simply not true. And it's simply not true in Evanston today, which brings me to another thing that really stood out to me when I looked at the details, which is so far, the recipients of the first round of housing grants were 16 people out of 12,000 Black Evanston residents are going to have access to this funding. I'm glad there's funding because that actually is a step forward from a lot of previous efforts to redress harm. But that's 16 people. So this brings me back to the homeownership piece. Why homeownership? So why is homeownership still considered the goal of this reparations program? Why is intergenerational wealth and Evanston being discussed in terms of getting people to stay in their homes? Now, there's a very good basis for why homeownership is, again, important. But I think that it essentially plays right back into the thing that, again, people like Taylor argued, which is that when you tie success and citizenship to property ownership, that's actually an invitation to form new methods of predation. Because where is that going to leave renters? Where is that going to leave future policies? So if this is another thing, too, is transitioning a little bit, which is that it also seems like Evanston is redressing historical harm, or trying to. And again, that's a key part of reparations. But what else is it doing to ensure that housing discrimination actually doesn't occur? Because by stopping in 1969, that also in some ways absolves Evanston of a responsibility for what is happening in the present moment or what has happened since 1969. So will it change any of its zoning policies? Because zoning continues to be discriminatory, even if it's colorblind. Who gets a seat at the table? Just like I said, NARA got a seat at the policymaking table, even though they didn't represent most realtors. Developers continue to have access to local politicians and local decision making, more so than oftentimes members of community. Is Evanston going to do anything to essentially not only redress harm, but actually create restorative zoning or housing policies? that will acknowledge that harm has continued since 1969 and that it will continue if the status quo is kept. So I think those are my big questions with it. Why isn't this version of reparations paired with a set of policy plans to acknowledge the present and acknowledge that history isn't past, it is still present? So in conclusion, Evanston, do better. Do better, Evanston. But also, I'm glad that Evanston may also be helping to move the national conversation. Because Evanston did this, 
will this in a long-term way also ripple out and potentially facilitate a national conversation happening? I hope so. I'm optimistic. But Evanston, it's only a start. Do better. Thank you so much for coming on my show. I learned so much. Thank you. This was really fun to, um, well, fun may not be the right word, but I really do enjoy talking about uh, what I think are such important topics in our present moment. Thank you so much for having me on. In the end, race and property value have no natural ties. The reason why that association persists goes back to the way that suburbs were planned. And that's the problem that really needs to be addressed right now. The link to Dr. Glotzer's book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, and the link to Dr. Taylor's book, Race for Profit, the one about reverse redlining, are both in the show notes, along with the link to rate my podcast on Podchaser. All power to all people, y'all.